From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking, a show about the most interesting people and stories in Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I'm editor-at-large and cartoonist with Mississippi Today. Uh, their guest today is Adam Makos. He, he's a military historian, best-selling American author, whose 2015 book, Devotion, which is excellent, by the way, recounts the true story of Mississippi native Jesse Brown, who was the first black aviator in U.S. Navy history, and his incredible friendship with fellow fighter pilot Tom Hudner. And it's now a 2022 American biographical war film starring Jonathan Majors and Glenn Powell. So here to discuss the book, the film, of course, his life, and of course, and the legacy and the devotion to military history as well, Adam Makos. Adam, welcome back to the show. I'm trying to think you when you were here last. I guess it was when you were promoting devotion. So that was a million and a half years ago because the pandemic, that was like 20 years. And then now we're now. But I am so glad to be able to talk to you. And congratulations on the movie. I got to see it last night, and it was really fun to watch. And it was fun to see parts of your book just leap to life on the screen. Well, Marshall, it's great to be back with you. We, we had a lot of fun when we kicked off the book uh, back in Jackson. And, uh, you know, the state of Mississippi has just been so good to this story and, and so uh, responsive to to re- rediscovering Jesse Brown, this amazing local hero who time forgot. And so I'm just glad to be a small part of kind of righting a wrong and putting the forgotten war back on the map. Yeah, definitely. The Korean War is definitely the Forgotten War. And talk about Jesse's story, too. And I think the reason why it put such a hook into me was, you know, here I am, editorial cartoonist, a journalist here in the state, thought I knew a lot about Mississippi history, and I didn't know about Jesse. And, you know, so that part of it was really exciting, getting to find out, wow, the first black naval aviator was from here in, in the Hattiesburg area. But then I started learning about Jesse, and when I read your book, I learned about what kind of human being he was, and then I found out about his relationship, of course, with Tom, and just fell in love with the story, and you did such a beautiful job telling it and bringing that humanity to life right in front of us. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's why I love it so much. I, I got to tell the audience that every time I drive past the Lux, Mississippi sign, which is right there near the sod farm on 49, if you're going south— I take a picture of it and send it to you, and you've got to think I'm the weirdest person on the planet for doing that. No, no. It, it reminds me of, of a very special place and, and uh, my relationship with this special story. So, no, I, I welcome it because uh, this is one I love. I, I spend, uh, gosh, I started the, the work on the Devotion book in 2007 when I met Captain Tom Hudner. Tom was, of course, a surviving hero. Jesse Brown lost his life at the age of 24. And I think that cut short his legacy in a lot of ways, in a way it shouldn't have. But I met Tom in Washington, D.C. at a convention. He was speaking to school groups, and Tom wore the Medal of Honor around his neck. So I knew he was somebody special. I caught glimpses of his story, and I had the chance that day to meet him. He was in the lobby of of the hotel getting ready to leave, and I decided to approach him. Because to me, it was like meeting one of the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, and I said to him, Captain Hudner, uh, I was a young journalist at the time, could I tell your story? I know you've told it many times before. Would you give me one more interview? And he gave me his business card, and that changed my life. But that was 2007, Marshall. I mean, the, the book came out in 2015, and we're making the movie just now. It just came out. So this thing has been a labor of love for more than a decade. I think and what – yeah, years. I think – yeah, Adam, I'll be honest with you, and it just – I am so incredibly jealous that you had that relationship 
with Tom and gotten to know him and you know, literally, and, and and I want you to tell the story, but I mean, there were so many ways that you were there with him as he helped try to bring Jesse back home, too. And uh, just, and one thing about Medal, Medal of Honor recipients is that they're always, you can kind of tell, they always have a degree of confidence about them and so forth, too. And they're just special human beings. What was Tom like? You're exactly right. They 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 carry themselves with the air of dignity. They somebody has I, somebody I can't can't lay claim to this, but somebody said the Medal of Honor is America's version of knighthood, and it really rings true. Tom was uh, an unusual hero in that he was he was so humble and so quiet that he was the kind of guy that you know in an elevator other people would kind of push him to the back, you know, and he would just he 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 just kind of floated amongst people, and nobody knew how this special person was was right there in front of us. Uh, He used to say to me that we wear the Medal of Honor for all who served. And he really took that seriously into heart. And so he would tell his story, but he would tell it because it would tell Jesse's story. And by telling the story of the Korean War, he was honoring everybody who fought in the Korean War. At the end of the day, Tom was not about himself. And so I kind of had to work hard to, to get him to... To, to tell enough to write a book, uh, but it was a story so remarkable that as I was working on it, I just kept saying, how has nobody done this before? How, how was this story lost to time? I'm about to say, I, I, I'm not sure that the Medal of Honor changed who he was. I think he was that person before he received the Medal of Honor, but, you know, I— and he also was that way up until the very end of his life. And I, and I read somewhere where he had actually had photographs of Jesse in his home. I mean, it was like, I think Jesse kind of haunted him, uh, but he was also with him for the rest of his life, wasn't he? Absolutely. They, uh, he used to have a picture of, um, of, his, of his crash. So I can tell the story of what he did that day on December 4th, 1950. But he actually had a painting of it over his desk. Wow. And, and I don't think it was to say, uh, this is, you know, what I did. It was, it was the most poignant way he could remember his last memory of Jesse. And, and he really, and it almost was like saying you have a job to do. Yeah. It was like reminding him that, that he still had a duty. So he was this remarkable figure who he was from uh, fall river, Massachusetts. He was supposed to go to Harvard, and we're talking back in the in the the World War II era, 1940s. And uh, he was in prep school at the time when one of his classmates went off to join the Navy. That classmate was George Herbert Walker Bush, and he so Tom watched his friend go into the Navy, become the youngest naval aviator at the time. And I know Marshall, you've you've had a number of interactions with the Bush family and a, and a close connection um, to that man. But he actually inspired Tom to join the Navy. And wow. so Tom was supposed to go on to Hartford. He was supposed to inherit the family business, a chain of grocery stores. Tom was well-to-do. He was at Andover Prep School. And so when he joined the Navy, it was a shock to his grandfather. It was like, almost like uh, it was almost like disinheritance time. And Tom wanted to serve his country. He became a fighter pilot. In the uh, you know interwar years after World War II, just missed the war, and that's where he became wingman to Jesse Brown. 1950, they're paired up in a squadron up in Rhode Island, and it was just this unusual marriage. It was 
a pilot from the country club scene of New England meeting Jesse Brown. And Jesse had come from the sharecroppers' fields of Lux, Mississippi. And Jesse had grown up barefoot. He would save his shoes for Sundays. And, and they would, so he had shoes, but he didn't wear them when he was working. He didn't wear them when he was playing. Those were for Sundays. And so he grew up literally dirt poor, but with these big dreams, a wild dream of being a naval aviator at a time when no black person had, had been there before. And so they were really the, this unusual marriage. And that's why I say they're the perfect face to the Korean War. They came from vastly different walks of life, and they became friends in that fighter squadron, and they'd go off to war, and they would go to the ends of the earth for each other. I think any good motivational speaker should get up on stage and tell the Jesse Brown story. Um, Jesse, literally, like you said, was in the fields near Lux, Mississippi, picking cotton, looking up, watching airplanes flying over, saying, I'm going to do that. I'm going to fly that plane someday. And, you know, as, you know, his parents probably looked at him and go, yeah, mm -hmm, right. You know, because obviously the realities of growing up in the in the in that time in Mississippi were – but he worked so incredibly hard with his academic studies. He was an athlete. Um, he managed to get into Ohio State. He unloaded boxcars and, and worked as a janitor to help pay for it and still managed to get top-notch grades while, you know, getting an engineering degree. The guy was absolutely an incredible person. Yeah, a lot of times we, we, we see our heroes, we see people who are first and everything like that, and we think about them in that role. But, I mean, Jesse Brown's the kind of guy that I would like to just call a friend, and I can understand why he and Tom, with them both having their personalities, why they managed to get along. But it, it took a while for them to kind of gel, didn't it, to be able to get to trust each other? It, it certainly did, because and I can tell you a little bit about the experience Jesse went into the relationship with, but you're, you're so right, Marshall. He, he was a Renaissance man and, and he was, he believed, he believed in America and the possibilities of America at a time when America didn't believe in him. Right. Which is, makes it even more remarkable. They used to say that Jesse would actually teach school there in, in Lux. So, so it was a one room schoolhouse and kids from grades kindergarten through you know 12th grade were all in one room and they would uh, the teacher had her hands full with they were all black kids so it was a segregated school and the teacher is trying to help these kids who are eight years old and seven and jesse's a teenager now he wasn't quite high school age at that point but he'd be he'd be teaching class for half the school while the teacher is teaching the other half i mean that's how absolutely remarkable he was and, and so it was, it was a work ethic, it was a smarts, it was a drive, it was a belief, it was all those things. We're when he and Tom Hudner met, they were, they were similar people. They were, they, were, they were good guys. And yet when they met in that locker room that day, Tom walked up to him and said, I'm Tom Hudner, and he stuck out his hand to shake Jesse's hand. And Jesse kind of looked down at him for a minute, looked at his hand, and Tom would later realize what happened, and then Jesse shook his hand and said, I'm Jesse Brown, nice to meet you. Jesse had been accustomed to, throughout his Navy career, sticking out his hand to shake someone else's, and the other man would keep his hand at his side. His own commanding officer, and it's in the film, it's mentioned in the film, and it's true. When Jesse won his wings as a naval aviator, or earned them, his commanding officer refused to pin the wings of gold on a black man. And so the second in command of the training base had to do it. 
so Jesse had been through some harsh stuff to get to that point as a naval aviator, and and that doesn't that's not even the beginning of it. There is a scene in the film, and like I said, you know, sometimes films exaggerate and so forth, and I'm trying to remember back from the book. But anyway, there was a, a scene in there where Jesse explained to Tom why he didn't necessarily, you know, Tom's like saying, no, if he'd have just, one of the pilots got in a crash and, and lost his life, said if he'd have just followed the rules, and Jesse kind of explained why, you know, he didn't believe always in that the rules matter because the rules have been used against him. So, And that was, I thought that was incredibly well done in the movie and how they portrayed that. But I can understand where Jesse was coming from. Yeah, he. Uh, I think he he had flight instructors who wanted to wash him out, wanted to see him disappear. But for every one who wanted to get rid of him, there was one who believed him. Right. And and that's partially due to Jesse's uh, mentality and attitude. You know, he he went in there. I, he he wanted to be a professional, and he wanted to fly for the Navy. I always wondered, nobody's ever talked about it, but why didn't Jesse try to become the first black airline pilot? Uh, why didn't he? There were so many other firsts he could have gone after if that was what he really wanted. He, he really wanted to fly and fight for this country, to do the most dangerous job, and that was landing planes on a carrier. And I think people saw that, and, and, and eventually it disarmed them. So even his detractors became his fans by the end. But, but it was certainly it's a it's a dangerous line of work. And when you have somebody trying to wash you out as a pilot, I mean, what a place to have enemies. Well, you made the transition from the Bearcat, which was one type of fighter plane with a shorter nose to a Corsair, which had a long nose, which is really hard to land on an aircraft carrier. You know, I mean, he's sitting there trying to figure out how to land it because he can't totally trust the landing officer because of everything you've been through. And that was the way they portrayed it in the movie. And you got to think, that is really tough to be able to overcome. Yet Jesse, like you said, overcame it and went on to, you know, literally into glory. So you're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today. In with us in on the phone, not in the studio. He's in the studio last time, but it's always great to talk to him. We have Adam Makos. He's the author of the 2015 book, which is now a major motion picture that is in theaters now. It's called Devotion. It's a fantastic book and movie, too. Adam, welcome, and thanks for joining us again. Man, it's good to talk to you. This has been great so far. I'm enjoying it, too, Marshall. And, and something you just said reminded me, we, we have to tell people they've got to see this thing on the big screen because a lot of people are, are saying, oh, I'll watch it when it comes to streaming. Well, your, your TV screen is maybe 33 inches, maybe it's 55 but there's you cannot beat seeing this thing on a 30 or 40 foot screen. I mean, I think you can attest, Marshall. I mean, the sound just shakes you and you're watching this incredible aviation, uh, you know, in motion. And right. I mean, it's this you got you got to you got to go see this thing while you still can. Yeah. The flight scenes were done by the same person who did Top Gun Mavericks flight scenes, correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah, and it showed. I mean, it was um, beautiful. And like you said, on the big screen, and, you know, you're talking World War II vintage aircraft that, honestly, um, there aren't many of them left in the world. And I, and also, too, I have to admit, and I'm of this age now, uh, I grew up with Baba Black Sheep, as, which was a television show in the 70s with Robert Conrad about World War II and Corsairs. And to see all the Corsairs together again in that movie, I was just like, I feel like a part. It's almost like getting to watch Star Wars again. It was really cool to see that too. Yeah, they had four real Corsairs that they used in the filming. They had two Bearcats, and they had even a Sky Raider. 
uh, one of the Korean War and Vietnam era bombers. And so real aircraft, and, and, and they're using them in incredible stunts. Uh, you had alluded to the Corsair being, you know, difficult to land on a carrier, and that's absolutely true. The movie follows it when we first see them uh, in, in, in real life. They were flying these Bearcats, which were little hot rods of fighter planes meant to uh, intercept kamikazes. That's what they were designed for at the end of World War II. So they were meant to just go from the carrier to the you know high altitude. They held the high altitude record, actually. And so it was this short, stubby, fast little fighter. And then our guys, right before the Korean War, they get reassigned to a new aircraft. But it's an old aircraft. It's the Corsair, the Baba Black Sheep plane. And that plane should have never been put into service on a carrier because, like you said, it has this really long nose to it. And when you're coming in on a carrier approach, especially in those days, you know, now we have the F-18s where the pilot's almost sitting, you know, at the very front of the aircraft. The Corsair, the cockpit is set way back. And so you essentially have to make your approach to a carrier almost blind. You're curving around with one wing tipped down. And at the very last moment, you're, you're following the instructions of this landing signal officer out of the corner of the windscreen. And at the very last moment, you snap your plane level and, and throw it down on the deck and hope to catch a, a hook. You know, it's um, it's the most dangerous thing you could possibly do. And and so in the film devotion, they actually built an aircraft carrier. Now, they didn't build the bottom part. They built the island, the tower. They built it on an airfield in Georgia so that they could actually land Corsairs and take them off, you know, from a real, you know, real airfield. So these were like the first carrier landings of a Corsair that have been done since the Korean War. I thought that was just fascinating. I remember following you on Instagram and seeing some of the pictures of, of them filming it and seeing that island popping up in the middle of the airport. I thought that was such a, a unique and a brilliant way to be able to bring that back to life. Now, is it true that you actually had cameos in the movie? Oh, I got to, yeah, I got to go on set, and uh, it was one of those dreams, you know, you always dream of getting to wear that uniform, even for a moment, and, uh, and getting to jump in a frame of a film, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing sometimes, so uh, I got a Navy flight jacket, and they put me in a flight suit, and, and I get to run around uh, the carrier deck, and there's a part where I, my face shows up on camera, I can point to it and show my mom. So it all paid off, but uh, I, I got to work on the script a little bit. I got to take a, a crack at the first draft, and you know, even when it came time to paint the planes for the movie, you know, I was I was helping them with the colors and the numbers and the markings, and they really wanted to make this movie as accurate as they possibly could, and and that's why they went to that great expense. You know, they they could have used one Corsair, maybe two, and digitally done the rest. Now they they flew these planes. They first filmed in Washington State, which dubbed for North Korea, and then they later on f ferried all these planes, these Corsairs, across the country to Georgia. And so, you know, it was it was a labor of love for the producers because everybody loved this story so much, and they knew how powerful it was and how much it could move the audience if it's told right. If anybody saw Top Gun, they'd know one of the producers uh, very well. Actually, he was executive producer. And I love how the fact that Glenn Powell was such a champion of this story. He had actually read your book and fell in love with the story and wanted to see it made into a movie. That's a great story in itself. So Glenn had come to me in 2017. He was a young actor. At the time, he was doing a Netflix show. 
And I, I had to look him up, honestly. I, I was like, who is, who's Glenn Powell? And then I, I, I basically wanted to test him because he said he had been on a fishing trip and he was reading devotion. And it turned out his father was reading devotion and his uncle. So it was this really strange confluence of uh, events there that everybody, everybody was reading the same book. So I kind of say it was meant to be. And he said, I want to play Tom Hudner and I want to make the movie. Well, I, we all know Hollywood, and you gotta you gotta uh, you know keep your vigilance about them sometimes. And so I said, well, Glenn, do you want to meet Tom Hudner, a real guy? He's 92 years old. And now if Glenn had come back and said, sure, you know, maybe once we get this going, or maybe this fall. I mean, it was springtime when he came to me. Instead, he said, when and where? Oh wow! And don't don't you know? A few days later. He was driving up from New York City, and I was flying in from Colorado, and we were sitting down with Tom Hudner at his kitchen table, eating waffles together, talking about the Korean War. And and that's how I knew Glenn was the right guy for the job. He was willing to get in the car and go. And then when there was a point where I was walking out to the door, we're going to go get our photos taken. And I was holding the door for Tom, and I looked back, and there was Glenn walking with Tom arm in arm. He was steadying Tom because Tom was Tom was really in bad health, and it was just a neat moment. It was like watching a grandfather and a grandson. And I said, "Okay, we've got the right guy." Tom was wearing his Medal of Honor at that moment, and they were, we were getting a photo taken. And the irony is that full circle. Five years later, Glenn is filming the Medal of Honor scene in the in the movie, and Tom Hudner is gone now. We lost Tom. Uh, in 2017, but his son, Tom III, brought his father's Medal of Honor and his father's class ring from the Naval Academy. And so in the movie, when Glenn gets the Medal of Honor draped around his neck, it is Tom Hudner's real Medal of Honor. You are kidding me. That is incredible. And he's got the ring, the Naval Academy ring that was Tom's, on his left hand. So, you know, it, life comes around full circle sometimes, and that's, that's how special this story is. There's, there's, there's so much honesty and truth to it that even you're seeing pieces of history on the silver screen right there. What I think is so beautiful about it, Adam, to be honest with you, this could easily be a story that happened last century and is, you know, from a million years ago. But this is a story and a friendship that continues to this day. Uh, the fact that, that Tom's son— and, and Jesse's granddaughter are friends, and the families are still friends. That just, to me, speaks volumes about how powerful this story was then and still is. They, the families are absolutely bonded, and, and even since the Korean War. So I, I should just say in a, in, a, in a brief way what happened that day on December 4th, because that kind of speaks to why this bond is so powerful. So Tom and Jesse were flying close air support at the Chosen Reservoir. Um, the Marines, the 1st Marine Division was surrounded by the Chinese troops. Uh, 100,000 Chinese against uh, about 30,000 Marines and Army units. And a lot of people thought we were going to lose all those men. I mean, it was just it was like the Alamo in North Korea. And Tom and Jesse, from their carrier at sea, flew in and were delivering close air support. The Marine and Navy flyers were the lifeline. They were the ones, you know, basically keeping the Chinese at bay because the Chinese didn't have the air power we did. They had the manpower. They didn't have air power. And so that day, 
Jesse was defending the Marines when his plane took a bullet from the ground, fired by a lone Chinese soldier, perhaps. And he went down behind enemy lines, crashed 13 miles uh, from the nearest friendly forces. He was trapped in his airplane. The airplane was catching on fire. And Tom was flying overhead with the rest of the squadron looking down at his friend. And it looked like Jesse was going to burn to death in the most terrible way, far from home, far from his wife, Daisy, far from his little daughter, Pam. It was just a terrible ending for this this pioneer. And that's when Tom Hudner did something that has never been attempted since. It had never been done before. He said, I'm going in. And he made an intentional crash landing of his own aircraft, a carrier landing on a mountain. And he crashed his Corsair and got out to try to save his friend. I mean, remarkable stuff. What do you say, Marshall? Oh, I'd say so. I mean, it was one of those kind of moves that I'm sure his commanding officer is probably thinking, do I court-martial or do you just go ahead and, and put you up for the Medal of Honor? Because, I mean, it was just, you know, I mean, it, but it just shows you who Tom was and it showed you what their relationship was on that, too. And um, the sad thing is, of course, they did come back and give him a proper, uh, I guess, the funeral. Uh, the flyers came in and they bombed his plane after he passed away in it. But... Jesse still remains on that mountain today, doesn't he? He does. So Tom's rescue attempt fell short. And I, I believe that's why the story hadn't been told till now. Uh, you know, if he got Jesse out and brought him home and they did a war bond tour together, you know, it might be America's most popular story. Jesse was pinned in the aircraft by his leg. Tom pulled and tried to cut the plane apart. Whatever he did, he couldn't get Jesse out. And Jesse was slowly fading from his internal injuries. And he gave Tom his last words. He said, just tell Daisy how much I love her. Wow. And Tom said, I'll, I'll do that. But when, when Jesse actually died and a helicopter came to take Tom off the mountainside, Tom said something very unusual, which was, we'll come back for you. Mm. And when I was writing the book and he said that, I, I got to that part in the interview, I, I called him up and I said, did you ever try to go back to North Korea? And he said, no, no, no. He said, you know, North Korea is North Korea. Nobody goes there. You see, Tom had thought at the time, nobody saw us losing that battle. We, we, we kind of lost the Chosen Reservoir in a sense that our guys had to make a fighting retreat to the sea. Marines in the Army, they got out, they got on boats, and they redeployed down the Korean coast. So it was a win, but we were retreating in the other direction. And so... Nobody got back to the mountain. Tom thought they were going to come back the next day for Jesse's body. He thought, you know, somehow we're going to win this and we're going to get him and we're going to at least bring him home. What happened instead, his squadron had to go and drop napalm at first on, on the remains of the two aircraft and on Jesse. Now, the little twist in the story that even I didn't know when I wrote the book was that we found evidence now that says the napalm didn't go off. The temperature was too cold, and they were using some jury-rigged napalm canisters because they had run out. They'd been dropping so many of them that they were using drop tanks filled with napalm, and, and they weren't always igniting. And so what we believe happened was when the napalm did not go off and burn Jesse's body as they hoped it would, the pilots dropped iron bombs on Tom's plane and on the mountain, but they didn't really drop the bombs on Jesse's plane. Nobody just wanted to blow their friend into bits. It was yeah. just too, it was, it was an impossible order. 
And so we believe that the following spring, a North Korean farmer would have buried Jesse on the mountainside. And so that's why the story continues. His remains are still there. And in 2013, Tom Hutter and I went to North Korea to deliver the coordinates of his crash, to deliver all the details we could and to negotiate for them to go back and look for him. And that search continues today. Well, Adam, I mean, number one, what an honor for you to be able to accompany Tom on that mission. I mean, you know, a lot of times you write about things, but, you know, you probably don't get as involved or you don't get to know the person as well. But the fact that you were able to do that with him um, is one of the best, I guess, honors you'll ever get as an author to be able to do that. But why? what roadblocks did you hit that didn't allow you to be able to, to bring Jesse home? Well, Marshall, our, our goal was to go to the Chosen Reservoir and go to the mountainside and to actually search for him, um, to talk to the farmers in the area and start triangulating where his remains would be. The We knew it wasn't going to work the minute we flew into the capital of Pyongyang when the monsoons had hit. So bridges were being washed away Mm. as we're driving from the airport with our North Korean hosts who were in the North Korean army, you know, colonels and majors. We could see soldiers by the side of the road filling sandbags. And we knew at that point we were never going to make it across the country to the chosen reservoir because roads were just washing away right in front of us. We went over bridges that were literally bowed in half. And we went down, you know, you drive your, your car or the bus down, and then you went up the other side of the bridge. Next day, the bridge washed away. So, I mean, it, we shouldn't have done that. It was so stupid. But, um, you know, the, when you mentioned what an honor it was, it, you know, I think it was now that I, I've never thought of it before, but it was worth going for Jesse. And mm-hmm. I think their ultimate compliment is that Tom was willing to do it. And now in hindsight, I guess I was willing to do it. Because you wouldn't go that far and risk your life for somebody who wasn't worth it. Right. And I never thought of it until this very moment when you said it. But really, we went because he was that remarkable. Mm-hmm. Anybody else, anybody less, no, not worth the risk at all. That's why I, I you know, I want to shout about Jesse from the, the mountaintops, literally, because, like I said, his story. And I, Daisy, was Daisy still alive when y'all went over to, to look for yes, him? Yes, she was. Yeah. Yes, she was. So, obviously, you know, she thought a lot of Tom's efforts, what happened on that mountaintop, you know, 1950. But I would imagine that that meant an awful lot to her, too, that y'all were trying to, to, to bring him home. It did. And she originally had always dreamed of Jesse. She remarried and around, oh, she, I think it was about a decade later. So she, she didn't remarry right away. It was... Uh, you know, it was it was a loss that took some time, and then she never really got over it. Jesse was always her true love, and even her new husband said, "I'll do the best I can. I know I won't be Jesse to you, but I'll take care of you as uh, you know, to the fullest of my ability." Wow! And so he was a good man that mm-hmm. she she remarried uh, a man named Gilbert Thorne, and uh, yeah, it's um, gosh, she knew Tom was going over to look for for Jesse, and it actually changed her attitude about where Jesse should end up, should he come home. She always saw it that he would rest in a military cemetery in Mississippi. And she began to say, if you ever find him someday, he should be in Arlington Cemetery because he's not just a hero from Mississippi. He's a hero for the whole country. 
and he should be in in a place of, of of honor where school kids around the country can come and stand at his grave, where where people can, you know, where he can be amongst the greatest military heroes in our history, and, and so. So, yeah, she was following every bit of it, and we haven't given up. It's just going to take time. Yeah, I know. Everything with North Korea definitely does take a little bit of time. And, I mean, like I said, this movie, your book obviously lit the fire. And this movie hopefully will spread that fire. And then once it gets to streaming and so forth and, you know, you get it all the different ways you can watch movies now. Like I said, it's a very well done movie and it does tell the story in a very powerful way. And I thought the casting was really good, too, on it as well. Jonathan Majors really did a fantastic job as Jesse Brown. Yeah, they, they both Tom, uh, Tom's actor, Glenn Powell, and Jesse's actor, Jonathan Majors, really poured their heart and soul into this thing. Uh, Glenn used to, in particular, he would call me up and, and he said, hey, I've got some questions about Tom. And he would go through, you know, what was his favorite food? What was his favorite music? What was his... He wanted to download as much as he could about this man. And he even wanted to know, what was Tom like as a kid? Did he get in trouble? What boyhood memories did he tell you about? He was kind of subconsciously programming himself, even with Tom's early years. And I found it fascinating. I would say, well, here's a time Tom got in trouble for throwing apples at a neighbor's car, you know, and stuff like that. And so I was telling these obscure stories. And when I got to see him portray Tom on screen, it's amazing, especially the ending where where he gets the Medal of Honor. I mean, it, it's just it, it. everybody in the theater, it brings tears to their eyes. Yeah, because we lost, you know, one of the characters we lose, Jesse. And then you see the weight on Tom's shoulders, not from just getting the Medal of Honor, but from having failed and, and not saved his friend. But, but that's the power of the story. The power of the story is how far he went for his friend and how far he went to keep his promise to Jesse's wife to, to be there for Jesse. And, and so it's one of the greatest stories of all time. It just hadn't been told before because people thought it had a bad ending. It doesn't. It's real life. And, and sometimes the power of, of, of a true story transcends how it ends. Well, and being there for him. And, and Dick Savoli, the, their commander. Um, and, and by the way, the actor that played him did a great job. And if I were Savoli's family, I would be like totally thrilled. He was a, a hero in his own right, Navy Cross recipient from Lady Gulf during World War II. And he died young, too, at a tragic accident in 1955. So, you know, it's I'm sure his family probably loves seeing their loved one back on the screen, too. But he, he kind of had that moment with Tom saying, you know, it, that there are wars— that go on for years that nobody will ever know about. But the fact that if you're there for somebody, that will always be remembered. And um, it's so true in this story. Yeah, there's this, this story is amazing in that it shatters a lot of war movie stereotypes. You know, the commanding officer, Savoli, is, is a compassionate guy who's, you know, obviously still feeling the effects of World War II. He's not the hard as nails, you know, uh, you know just kind of, chewing a cigar kind of type. He's, he's a different kind of leader. And, and Tom Hudner is an unusual hero because Tom doesn't even, he, you, you really see Tom reacting to Jesse more and you see his act, Glenn's acting in his eyes. He's a, he's a subtle hero and, and characters like, you know, we, there's a character who dies in the movie and his plane crashes into the Mediterranean sea. 
and and you realize that these are real life people being portrayed very well, and we're bringing them back from the dead, and that's a really cool thing. And I, I urge people, if you have a member of your family who served in the Korean War, don't just say, "Oh, what a nice movie." We got to support this movie because this is honoring a generation of veterans that that America kind of treated like second-class citizens. You know, the Korean War, we shouldn't have a forgotten war, just like Vietnam veterans should not have been treated the way they were. Right. And yet we lost 33,000 people in Korea fighting to keep World War III from brewing over. And, 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 you know, all we have from that war is MASH as a TV show. That's that the last Korean War movie was Pork Chop Hill with Gregory Peck in nineteen fifty nine. I mean Yeah. This is a chance to to change the perception of a whole generation of veterans. And we have to take it and we have to run with it because this is one of the rare times when Hollywood actually turns out good stuff. The you know, the Korean War, uh, my mentor is a cartoonist who literally just retired at age 90, and he's he'll be 92 in a couple days. Um, he's just an incredible guy, but he was in Arlington as one of the guards, and the commandant came through one day and said, the only good Marine is a Marine that's in Korea. He's like, okay. So next thing you know, he's at, in San Diego getting ready to get on a troop ship, and he observed a fight. And so somebody cold cocked their sergeant. And so Charlie got pulled off the boat before the boat left. And the boat, like I said, it went away. Charlie was waiting around for the court martial because he was a witness. And everybody that got on the boat that day um, in his platoon got wiped out. And that's just kind of the way that. And so Charlie found out later that at the moment that he witnessed the fight that his fiance. Uh, and asked for prayer at their church and, and that Charlie remained safe. And that literally happened at the moment. And so Charlie's like, well, you know, I start going to church pretty regularly after that. But but it was just he, he was like, you know, a lot of people just don't understand how incredibly brutal the Korean War was. And one of the things we're, we, we've been talking about, and we're going to take a break here in just a second. But one of the things that we've been talking about was them on the mountaintop in the Chosen Reservoir. One thing we've left off was the fact that it was way below freezing <laughs> when that was happening. And so, you know, here, all this is going on when it's 15 degrees. Um, just, it, it was, you know, the Chosen Reservoir, and I don't think they'll understand, it. it was like Valley Forge, the Battle of the Bulge, and Dunkirk all thrown into one package with 100,000 people trying to kill you all at the same time. Man, nobody's ever going to say it better than that. You're so right. And uh, yeah, man, that's, that's, you nailed it, Marshall. Well, good. We've been talking about the new movie that's out, Devotion. You can see it in theaters right now. And of course, Adam wrote the book, came out in 2015. Fantastic book. I recommend you go see the movie, but also buy the book as well, because um, Adam writes just incredibly wonderful books. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you right now. Um, I have been a fan, like I said. I, you know, I remember my wife got me Voices of the Pacific. I love that. I think A Higher Call was the one that really put you on my radar. Um, that that story, of course, of a benevolent German fire pilot not blowing a B-17 out of the sky was such a powerful story, too. And that's the thing. There's kind of that thread about your book. You know, Jermaine was kind of kidding with me. She said, oh, what is it about you in World War II and all that? And I said, you don't understand. This isn't necessarily a World War II or Korean War story per se is this a story about people and about humanity as well. And uh, definitely devotion is that. We've, we've kind of talked about it a little bit. 
When you were growing up, what inspired you to sit down and create and write books like this? I was very lucky that my grandfathers uh, both lived in proximity to me. Both had served at the tail end of World War II, so neither saw combat. One was a Marine, one was on a B-17. And so they were fascinated by World War II, and they were able to take me to air shows and museums. And so I was just, I was a kid who, instead of going to the mall to watch a movie with the other kids, I was interviewing World War II vets. And, and so it just always fascinated me. But I learned at a very early age, you know, when you start, we started a little homemade magazine, my brother and friend and I, and it was about veteran stories. I learned, though, very early on that the stories that were fascinating to me were not about the machine gunner who shot down, you know, or shot, you know, mowed down 30 Germans or the, the sniper who shot a guy on, you know, at the longest distance. The stories that were fascinating were, were the ones where humanity was involved. And, and so they became later on my books. Um, the story of the German ace, Franz Stiegler, who decided to spare an American B-17 bomber that was badly damaged and limping home over Germany. And he escorted out of Germany instead of shooting it down and flew to the coast, saluted, and flew away. And the American crew later on came, came back around and they found the German in the 90s. And the pilot, Charlie Brown, became best friends with Franz Stiegler. I mean, this was an incredible story with death. Their encounter between Franz and Charlie, no bullets were fired. It was a moment of humanity between somebody that people would say, oh, a Nazi fighter pilot, you know, sparing an American bomber crew. And so stories like that, stories of Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown, the guy from the country club and the sharecropper's son, uniting and going to the ends of the world together in North Korea. These stories have depth and they speak to you and they, they are applicable to anybody because it's not just about somebody killing the most people. It's about humanity rising to be its best and it can inspire you and it gives you hope for humanity and it just hits on so many different levels. And, and Marshall, you know, the funny thing is I've come to really love going to Mississippi whenever I have a new book. I go to Lemuria Books and uh, I've been up to Oxford uh, you know, to uh, the bookstore in the square there. Mm-hmm. And Lemuria, though, gosh, John and his team there, they have they have been be- become my best friends and my biggest promoters because they love this stuff, too. And so Mississippi is an incredible state. And, and I'm just I'm thankful to have friends like you and, and so many good readers there. Mississippi still understands patriotism, still understands America and still understands that this country was built on great sacrifices. And, and we're 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 better people for remembering them. Uh, it has to happen. You, you've always been very kind, of course, to to me and being on the show. And, of course, I would love talking to you. And, of course, when I send you pictures of Lux. And one of my coworkers here who's the head of television at Mississippi Public Broadcasting's father was a pilot and so forth. And his dad uh, reached out to you and you reached out back to him. And he, John just came up to me and he said, I, I just want to let you know that Adam, Adam is one of the nicest human beings on the planet. And I said, well, don't disagree with you on that one. So, but I know you enjoy that. I mean, I know you enjoy the interactions with the, the with your readers and with different people and getting to meet new people and so forth. And, and we'll, you're always welcome in Mississippi at any time. Well, thank you so much, Marshall. It's been, it's been a great friendship and great relationship with you. And, and I, I see these books and these stories as more than a product. It's not me writing something and trying to sell it to you and you either enjoying it or not. It's uh, it's us celebrating. It, it's I'm not going to compare it to a religion or anything like that, but 
but there is a religious element to it in that, you know, we're celebrating something that is sacred to to our country. And a lot of our country has forgotten this. A lot of our country is concerned with, uh, you know, tearing down the foundations of who we are and looking at our history and saying, oh, it was all bad because of this or because of that. A lot of our country is focused on fantasy and, and you know, we're going to go watch Marvel movies and that's going to somehow fix our lives. You know, we, we, we sometimes forget how this country was, you know, our history matters. Our history helps us be better people. It helps us guide the way forward. And I'll get, off, I'll get off my soapbox, but I believe these stories are sacred and that stories like Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown, story of devotion, you know, you know, we can't forget these. They're, they're just simply too important. So I love it when people celebrate these like I do. You know, we're one family that love the same thing. You touched a little bit on what your current project is. Tell us a little bit about it and when we should expect to have it under our Christmas tree. Oh, gosh. I, I hope my publisher will, uh, you know, I, I hope they'll they'll like it as much as I do. But I've been working, you know, quietly for a few years on a book about the Polish resistance in World War II. Uh, it, it seems that to find some of the untold stories, you've got to go further and further these days. But I found an amazing story that will be out in about, oh, gosh, I don't know, maybe a year, maybe two years. Um, but it's about uh, the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts who fought the Nazis in World War II. Wow. And I've been kind of researching it and tracking it down and piecing it together. I don't, I don't even have a publisher yet for it. But, um, you know, five years of trying to figure out this untold story. And that's just that's just a statement, really, Marshall, of how much I love these stories. You know, I, I worked on devotion for 15 years to this point. I've been working on this new book for five years. Other books have taken seven years. You know, you pour a lot of life into these things, but you, you don't do it by accident. You do it because the story is that good. And that's one thing. If I'm going to write something, it's going to be an amazing book. It's going to be worth your time and money. And that's why, you know, I tell people, go see John Evans at Lemuria or go to Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, um, and you will not you will not regret it because, uh, you know, these are stories that will that'll change your life. I would say I can only imagine what it felt like for you to, to sit there on the big screen and watch your book turned into a movie. Oh, it, it was it was like watching because to write it, you first have to see it in your mind. And so I was watching things like the attack on the bridge at Sinuchu. Where the where the corsairs are coming in and strafing the anti-aircraft positions, while the sky raiders are bombing the bridges, and it's like wow, this is this is something I've only seen a dream before, you know. And I hope the book conveys it to that level, um, and I believe it does. And, and actually, speaking of the book, you know, I know Christmas is almost here, and if somebody is looking for the coolest gift you can give somebody, if you've already read the story and, and you like it. Uh, we actually have some books signed by Tom Hudner himself. Wow! And and there, wow! Uh, I have my, you know, I have, we have a small family business called Valor Studios. It's a website, valorstudios.com, and we basically sell historic artwork. And you know, as an artist, you'd appreciate it, especially Marshall. But these are, you know, it's just kind of how I pay the bills and keep the lights on, so I can go write the books. But we have some books signed by Tom Hudner back in 2015. They were supposed to go to an event, and the event got canceled, and I've got them. And so we listed them up for sale. And so not only can you watch the movie about this hero, but you could still get his autograph. 
and you can give that book to your father, grandfather, somebody cool. Uh, so I would I would say if you need the ultimate Christmas gift, uh, it's waiting for you at ValorStudios.com, devotion book signed by Tom Hudner. That's incredible. Adam, thank you so much. Um, like I said, you've got several books out. They're all fantastic. Devotion is wonderful, the movie. And I'm just I'm thrilled for you to be able to see one of your books turned into a movie because I know that's a big deal for an author as well. But I uh, look forward to your next book, and I look forward to our next conversation. I, I do too, Marshall. Thank you so much for spreading this incredible story. It's a, it's a victory for, for America. It's a victory for Mississippi. It's a victory for the Korean War. So I'm just proud to be a part of it. And definitely, and it's just a victory for anybody who wants to go watch a movie about, you know, people that actually really care for each other, and it makes a huge difference in, at the end. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, it's an honor. Good talking with you once again. All right. We want to thank you for listening and thank our guest, Adam Makos, for joining us today. And if you'd like to hear the show again or any past episodes, you can listen to our podcast on our favorite podcast app or on our MPB Public Media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio and is produced by Jermaine Flood. Hey, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Join us next week at 10 a.m. for another great conversation right here on MPB Think Radio. Y'all have a great week.